Good Tuesday afternoon. Welcome back to the second half of season two of the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. We have a brand new crew of sous chefs with us joining us, and we got some serious hot topics to chop up on the menu. So sit back, relax, and let's get kick it off. Okay, everybody, welcome back. And again, welcome to another round of the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. I have a brand new crew of sous chefs joining us. I'm going to see if I can bring them into the menu. Uh, let's see if we can actually show them all up. Experts, we have Shayla Harris. I'm Shayla Hayes. How are you doing, Shayna? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Tell us about yourself. Um, I'm a junior at North Carolina Central University. I am a mass media major, mass communications major with a concentration in PR. Very good. And we also have joining us Mr. Xavier Rice. Hello, Mr. Rice. Tell us about yourself. Hello. How are you doing? I am also a junior. Um, my concentration is mass communication with a concentration in media studies. Glad to have you. We also have Ms. Kristen Bowman. Kristen, tell us about yourself and what brings you to this program, to this class. Hi, my name is Kristen Bowman. Um, I'm a senior at North Carolina Central University, majoring in mass communications with the broadcast, I mean, with the concentration in broadcast media. And we have Darren Moore, who we really can barely see, but we'll hope he'll fix his camera and a microphone. Darren, tell us who you are. Tell us about yourself, what brings you to this class. Darren can't hear. So again, I'm going to go ahead and take him out for a little bit, but he'll come back in a moment. In the meantime, just to give everybody again, a quick overview about what we do here. This is a class podcast. Uh, This is actually class for diversity and media at North Carolina Central University. And what we do to actually get the class a little different, as opposed to me giving course lecture and call and response, we actually put together a podcast. And the idea here is for all of our students to actually be content contributors. And we have a serious amount of content to talk about. In our show today, if we take a look at our main menu, I can tell you what's coming down from that. Um, I can tell you from our rundown, we're gonna be talking about, of course, the insurrection that took place back in January, a month out from that. We'll also be talking about the need for African-American journalists of color. And we're gonna be joined with a very special guest, a former instructor at NCCU now, a professor of practice, assistant professor of practice at Syracuse, uh, Syracuse University in New York, Professor Shelby Dante, as well as one of our own, Professor Brett Chambers, who also sits on many boards in MassCom, dealing with radio, television news directors. We'll also talk about the need, I guess, of having people in pivotal positions, uh, such as news directors and so forth. And we'll also talk about even what it's like to be a woman journalist of color, particularly along the lines of peer politics and a few other things. So let's get the show started. Let's talk about this. We had an insurrection. Somebody give me the highlight reel. What happened? What do you take from this insurrection that went down? How do you feel about it? Um, What happened at the insurrection is basically about a month before everything happened, Trump was urging his protests, his supporters, that if he lost this election, it was rigged or stolen from him. So of course his supporters like really um, got infuriated once he lost and basically they went and stormed the Capitol um, on January 6th of 2021. So that was definitely a moment in American history none of us expected, none of us saw. Tell us, as students, how did you all feel about that? Well, from my point of view, it was really, at first I thought it was a joke. And I say that because um, there's no way, you know, if, you know, the shoe was on the other foot from a race standpoint, if Black Lives Matter was to do something like that, that it would have even went that far. So for it to even go that far and people were allowed to even enter the Capitol building was really like crazy and strange to me. Um, for me personally, it gave me a little bit of anxiety. Honestly, it's just scary to think about just how people like people's beliefs and how far they're willing to go 
um, to show these beliefs. So it just gave me a bit of anxiety just being a person of color in America, honestly. What about you, Xavier? It was really upsetting to me to see how the government didn't really care that they people were actually storming the Capitol building. Like this has never happened in American history yet. They're acting like it's not such a big deal, but they know if a person of color was to try to do these things, or if there was a group of people of color who did this, the same outcome would not have happened. Like they would have used deadly force of some kind because right. just because of our skin, I feel. And they didn't do that because I feel like they don't really, they well, they don't respect us. So if we were to do a comparison of media coverage, a tale of two cases involving the Capitol or a tale of two protests, back in July of 2020, there was a BLM Black Lives Matter protest in regards to the, the shooting, the police brutality deaths regarding black people, George Floyd, just to name a few. And when they had that, there was a visceral, visible police presence, a militarized police presence at the Capitol compared to what you saw happen recently with the insurrection. Looking at that, just studying the images on the surface, tell me what you think about that. Well, I kind of, you know, did some compare and contrast. I pulled up like a lot of different articles from Black Lives Matter, specifically one from George Floyd. And one of the articles that I um, read about um, the headline was Black Lives Matter on a March to Destruction. So automatically the title off the top gives a negative vibe about like what's going on. But the article basically discussed how Black Lives Matter wasn't actually a Black Lives Matter I guess it wasn't for positive, if that makes sense. Like, I guess the article was um, implying that Black Lives Matter marches and stuff like that, specifically the ones that George Floyd were for looting and robbing. So it kind of turned a negative eye, like to Black Lives Matter once that went on. Okay, okay. Someone else? Um, For me, just like comparing body language, at least, it really shows me how they the biases that exist between the two groups. It's just... They were so much more calm and reserved when it came to the insurrection. But when it comes to Black Lives Matter, you can tell in their face, they're just more enraged, ready to just be on attack when we, it's just not fair. About the press coverage. I mean, when you take a look at how the two pieces were covered, do you think there was a difference, I guess, regarding how the stories were covered? Or at least if you compare the media coverage of both incidents? It's definitely a difference, whether that's wording, um, what information they choose to include. I feel like it is definitely a difference between the two. Okay. At this time, I am going to pivot to a very special guest who's joining us, a very dear friend of mine, as well as a, a very valuable alum of NCCU. Um, that is Ms. Shelvia Dancy. Uh, attorney Shelvia Dancy, welcome to the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. We are graced by your presence here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Um, many moons ago, I won't say how many, um, I was just like you guys. I was a student at North Carolina Central University studying NASCOM. NCC was my heart. I love that school. Um, I am now a professor of practice at Syracuse University um, after working for many, many years in the media industry. Um, I studied journalism at NCCU. I knew at an early age that I wanted to be a news reporter. In high school, I auditioned for an NBC affiliate that had um, high school teenagers working as on-air reporters for them. So I did that when I was in high school. Um, I also co-hosted a talk radio show for teens. Uh, then I went to NCCU. Um, I was editor of the, the Campus Echo. I worked at WNCU 90.7 FM. Um, did some internships at the News and Observer and Wilson Daily Times. In the governor's office. Um, then I got a full scholarship to go to Syracuse. I um, also got an internship from the Associated Press. I uh, got a full scholarship to go to Syracuse to get a master's in newspaper journalism. I did that, worked at the newspaper, the Post Standard, while I was there. Um, graduated, went to Washington, D.C., worked for Newhouse News Service as a national correspondent covering politics. Um, I covered Supreme Court oral arguments, publishing in the Washington Post and LA Times. Then I switched to working in television, and then I started my career as a TV news reporter and anchor. I worked in Raleigh, um, in Memphis, behind the scenes in DC. I've been a contributor to um, 
the Oxygen Network, Discovery Channel. I covered a homicide for the Nancy Grace show. Um, and then I decided to go to law school, so I did that. And, and then I graduated and I went back to working in the news industry as an evening anchor and legal analyst. So as you can see, she is more than qualified to be with us today. Thank you again, Shelby. I really appreciate this. So, so as we're talking about the press coverage of the, the insurrection and also looking at this information about people of color in television news, uh, some of the most recent RT and RTDNA data, and that actually is the Radio Television Direct Digital News Directors Association. I'm sorry, if I got it wrong, I'll fix it eventually. But we saw that we have the numbers, they actually in some cases have increased uh, the population of color versus those in television news workforce. And as we take a look at the African-American numbers back in 1995, we are at 10%. Uh, let's say 2010, we are at 11%. Um, and then if you take a look at 2020, we're at 13%. So we have climbed, but we are not where we, I don't think where we are where we could be. Tell us about your experience, I guess. And do you think that, I guess, having, does race matter in matters of covering big events such as this, like the insurrection, as well as, I guess, the, I guess, the, the protest in D.C.? Um, when you say race matters, you mean in terms the race, the race does, yeah, I'm sorry, does race matter in terms of having black and brown people in the newsrooms and matters of coverage and quality of coverage? Um, yeah, I think it's important. We're in the business of communications. Um, no news outlet is served by having a limited number of voices. The more voices at the table, the more effective you will be as a news outlet. And the more those voices reflect the world that we live in, the better for the news outlet. Um, I think when people are excluded, it shows in the news coverage, um, as was the case, like, you know, in the before newsrooms became integrated. Um, we even have newspapers now that are like apologizing for the kind of coverage that they gave African-Americans. Um, I don't want to get it wrong. I feel like it was Kentucky, but I could be wrong. Um, but there's a newspaper recently that like literally apologized for the way that they wrote about people of color, for the way they ignored certain things and emphasized others. So I do think it makes a difference to have people of all backgrounds making decisions about what reaches the public because ostensibly news outlets want to cover the entire community. So why not have everybody from all parts of that community helping produce that coverage? That only makes sense. So it's to the benefit of news outlets to have people of color, everybody at that table making choices about what photos to run, um, what language to use in headlines. That's important. Chris Kristen, you, you made a point about, I would say, about headlines. Tell us now, you said you saw different types of headlines as yes. they covered. So I just went and I just researched like a lot of different headlines about Black Lives Matter versus like the Capitol riot. And like, if I could share my screen, I could show you like the different articles that I um, looked at. But it was like headlines that... Um, for the Capitol riot, I guess when they were doing the riot, the headlines okay. weren't placing the blame on anybody specifically. If that makes sense, they were calling them Trump fans. They weren't calling them like rioters or they weren't calling them criminals. But for Black Lives Matter, it was always, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters are destroying this or they always put a name. They stuck a name for black for black people, I felt like. So. Shelvia, tell us about this piece in regards to how coverage can be slanted or even colored, if you will, for lack of a better term, by language or lower thirds. How does that impact someone when they see a news story? Uh, how does that, I guess, have an impact in regards to even if you do a story like that and frame it along the lines of race and class and gender? Um, in all cases, language matters, and that certainly is the case in a newsroom. Um, as Kristen pointed out, it makes a difference whether someone who's demonstrated is called a rioter or a protester or a demonstrator, or if they're defined by their political party and not their skin color. Um, those are all choices that people in newsroom makes, whether it's the person who's writing the headline, typically a copy editor would do that. Um, or if it's the reporter posting their story on the web and choosing to use a certain headline or choosing to use certain language. Um, intentional or not, it can be perceived as coded and sometimes it is coded. And that's the kind of stuff because we want more people to trust us. 
So if there are some biases seeping in, that needs to stop because that diminishes trust. There's no reason for people to trust you if they can look at your headlines and look at um, the terms that you use in a news report and get your personal feelings about something. So it's just compromising your objective as a journalist to do things like that. Um, so it doesn't do the journalist any good and it just diminishes the credibility of a news outlet for the audience when that kind of thing is detected. And beyond credibility, it's just as a human being, it's just not the right kind of human to be. It's not okay to be like that. It's not okay to not be fair and for it to show up in your work. So Shelby, again, why do you think this has happened, I guess, so systemically and so long, I guess, in, in journalism, television journalism to, as an example? Um, in order for it to change, the people who are producing the content have to be aware and have to want to change. Um, that doesn't happen everywhere. Um, and that hasn't happened for a long time. I think outlets or many outlets have had no interest in changing because it served them well. There was not a critique of what they were doing. Um, I shouldn't say there was not a critique. There was not a public critique of what they were doing. So there was no pushback to language that was problematic or photos that were problematic framing that was problematic. So there was a reason for them to change if they didn't want to. I think now, um, and I think Twitter is fabulous for this, um, Facebook as well, social media just gives people a voice to call out things that should be called out and to point out things that should be pointed out to get the wheels turning so that decision makers can recognize that either A, there's something problematic with their decisions and they need to look at it again, or B, um, these conscious make don't go unnoticed by the public and can affect the bottom line too, because that, that's a powerful influencer as well. Okay. So bottom line, do you all know what she means when she talks about the bottom line? What about you, Xavier? What do you say? I do not. Could you explain on that? Yeah, sorry. Great question. I should explain that. There are times when people are so dissatisfied with the kind of news coverage that they see that they'll refuse to buy the newspaper or call on advertisers to withhold advertising from a particular show. And that means the TV station is going to make less money or the newspaper is going to make less money. That's a powerful way to get the attention of people who make decisions. Very good. Very good. So in the news locally, we've had some things that have changed I guess had have been true game changers. Uh, we have recently at our local ABC affiliate, Disney owned and operated, um, we have now acquired, been very great, uh, gracious to have with us a North Carolina returning native returning home, if you will, to, um, to come in, if you will, and take over a top spot, I guess, as a news producer, or not even news producer, I'm getting my words mixed up. She is now a news director. Shelby, can you tell us what a news director is? Yes. Um, and first, let me see. I'm so pleased for Brevet. Many, many years ago at News 14 Carolina, I got an email from someone saying, I'm a graduate of A&T. I want to break into the industry. Could I shadow you for a day? And that person was Brevet. She shadowed me. She was awesome. She asked wonderful questions. And I'm beyond thrilled with where her career has taken her. The news director is, um, it's like, is the boss <laughs> of a TV station. They're the ones who make the decision about the news content and the news coverage. Um, when it comes to hiring, the anchors that you see, the reporters that you see, those are choices made by the news director. In consultation with the general manager, but the news director, like a newsroom hierarchy where there's reporters, anchors, producers, uh, photographers, news directors like right here. Right above it is general manager, but news directors like right here. And they control the news content, deciding if they're gonna be special reports about you know HBCUs in a particular month. A news director makes those choices. So they're the ones who set the tone for the television station. That's a powerful position to be in. So again, if we were to go back and take a look at the RTNDA data, and I try to make sure that we have our facts kind of right here if I can. Um, let me get out of this screen. I wanna make sure that we talk about that because the most recent data from RTDNA states that in the population, let's see if I can pull the screen up here, um, that we just don't have that many people who are in that position as news director. And given what you say, you know, that's a powerful spot to be in. The news director, let me see if I can pull that up again. Um, yes, so in the RTNDA, we look at the news director, let's make it a little bigger. We take a look at the, at the demographic breakdown from 1995 
Um, and again, this is the total population. You have 82 or 92 percent and 95 Caucasian who were news directors uh, compared to 1.6 African-American, 3.18 Hispanic Latino, 1.5 uh, Asian-American and one and Native American. If we now go to the year of 2020, which we just left, which in hindsight looks better in the rear view, uh, again, we're at 82% news directors who are Caucasian. We've had a slight increase, 3.9%, but then you also have 10% of Latino, 3.1% Asian American, and again, now 0.4% Native American. Some of you all, please. And Shelby, feel free to jump in here. Where do you all think the cause effect relationship with this lies? If we know that the news director is the one that really is the boss of the newsroom, and you see here that we don't have that many who are African American or other of color, but you have it predominantly by African by Caucasians, and I dare to say Caucasian men. What does that have to do? What's the cause effect relationship that would have on the news spin? They're not getting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I feel like they're not getting the news that they're putting out there is not going to be the same type of experiences that you would get if other people of color were saying as in Asian Americans or African Americans, it's just gonna be from the, the white Caucasian standpoint. And that's not necessarily the news that everyone wants because everyone is not a white Caucasian male. We all don't accumulate to the same thing. Okay, someone else, Kristen. I have read an article, um, The Racial Divide on News Coverage and Why okay. Representation Matters. And the article basically discussed like the lack of black individuals in the newsroom, you know, and fulfilling those positions of power in the newsroom. And what it does is it basically, well, white America basically is dictating how and what we see like on the news and the media. And so when it comes to like Black Lives Matter being covered, they're not going to ever show the positives of Black Lives Matter. They're never going to show a peaceful protest. And in the findings of that, they also said that America, well, Katie Gray, she wrote the article. She said that Americans agree that newsroom needs to be diverse, but blacks would like to see more racial diversity while whites would perform more political diversity. So from that standpoint, I don't, I don't know. I guess when it comes to white people in the newsroom, they don't see race. They are more so in, into politics. Okay. I definitely agree. I think when, um, White people are mainly at the head of the newsroom. Their biases kind of seep into what we see and what we read. I actually had another class, it's reporting and writing. And the teacher, we did a protest story um, from September. And just the way the um, writer decided to write the lead and the information she included really, it, you see how it plays into how people feel about these protests and the biases that come along with the protests. Like she didn't mention the um, reason for the protest until way later on in the story, knowing most people read the lead and stop there. So you really just use their bias to seep into a lot of the news we get. Okay. And joining us, I think relatively soon, um, we should be seeing Professor Brett Chambers come in, but I also wanna give Professor Dancy an opportunity to chime in on this as well. Oh, about the impact? Yes. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, news is a collection of decisions that people make. You can't tell every story in a 30 minute newscast. I would tell people that all the time. It's not a documentary. People are selecting what stories you hear about. They're also choosing the stories you do not hear about. So when we watch that 30 minute newscast or an hour long show, we are looking at choices somebody made for you. I think the more people we have making those choices for the entire viewing audience, the better it is for that viewing audience. So that you don't wind up with, I don't know how to put this, so that you wind up with multiple ways of seeing the world. We have, I don't know, a billion people on this planet. There are a billion ways to see this world. It's problematic though, if the way to see that world is only told through one set of eyes. That doesn't do people any good. That doesn't do the world any good. And that doesn't do storytelling any good. So it, to the extent possible, the more people you have telling stories, making those choices about what flashes on the screen at five o'clock at night, then the better the public is served by that. Very good, very good. How do you think we can diversify those high level jobs? 
Oh, I saw your question over there, Xavier. Good question. Um, um, I think it has to start with hiring. People who, like with any profession, people who hire, they're making choices about who gets in this industry and who does not get in this industry. New, uh, news directors typically start off as producers and work their way up. So if those gatekeepers at the hiring level are making choices that keep certain people out, then they're never even going to have a shot at getting to be a news director. So how I, will we go about moving around that? I was going to say, I do think there are specific programs that are, there are programs that are specifically focused on bringing talented people of color into newsrooms. And I do know that that's controversial, um, but I personally think it's no more controversial than shutting us out of newsrooms, which is has been the MO for, for decades. Like only recently have, has someone who looks like me been allowed to be a news anchor. And I would hear that all the time from older women constantly approaching me to tell me that in their lifetimes, it would have been unthinkable to look like me and be a news anchor. So programs that specifically work to bring in people of color into newsrooms. Um, I, NBC News Associates program is one um, that I made the top six for where they're looking for talented producers to bring you into the newsroom at a network level to work as producers. Um, the Newhouse Fellowship, which is what I won when I, as a student, to come here to Syracuse, which looks for talented people of color to get you a master's degree in magazine or newspaper journalism and help you launch your career. Those are the kind of programs that I think are helpful to combat the people and ways of thought that work to keep us out. Someone has to be out there saying, come in, come in, come in, because there are millions of people saying, stay out, stay out, stay out. So on that note, we're gonna take a quick 30 second break because we're also going to allow for Kristen, she has to go to a prior engagement. I wish you a safe journey on that, but we'll be back in roughly 30 seconds and hopefully we'll then be joined also with our other guests. And we'll also come back and start talking about, believe it or not, the hair politics of a newsroom. See you soon. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs and dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Welcome back, and we are still here. Um, we're at the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. I am your host. I also go by the sous chef of Doc Rob. We hope you're doing well. Right about now, we're going to go ahead and pivot our conversation a little bit to something that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's the notion of this, of hair politics in the newsroom and black hair politics in general. So we saw a very interesting story recently. I'm going to go ahead and pull this up for us real quick. Um, these three black women faced here for their, this is an old piece that we're gonna pull up, but it's kind of old, but we also saw a rather interesting success story with this as well. And it talks about, not that, not RTNDA, let's go back. When you do your own, look, when you have to be your own tech person, it can be rough. So please forgive any errors here. Um, but more so, we talked about this issue or this phenomenon, if you will, of black women in the newsroom. So we came across a very interesting piece Black women on TV face security regarding their natural hair in the newsroom. Uh, one of the most prominent ones, I think her name was Rhonda Lee. She was a meteorologist and she was terminated because of her hair. So, and thinking about the experiences of being a black woman in the newsroom, a professional in the newsroom, Shelby, tell us about this issue that we're, that we still, I guess I haven't negotiated. I, who I wish I still had my hair, Really can't negotiate, but talk to us about the hair politics in a blue in a newsroom for black women. Yeah, I remember Brittany Noble is referencing this article. I remember she wrote a, a, a very interesting um, article about her experience at her last TV station where her hairstyle was problematic for the news director. Um, um, it's a it, it's a big deal for a lot of women. I will say, for my own journey in the news industry, I never had a news director who seemed to care much what. I did with my hair and I didn't do a lot with it, but I never felt pressured or anything. Um, I do I do think in the news industry, when you step on camera, a lot of news directors have an idea of what they want their news anchors to look like. And for many 
structures, curly, even curly hair. Like, you know, what natural hair is not a part of their vision. Um, there are some anchors who tweeted like, like, like almost like hate emails they get from viewers who react extremely negatively to curly hair or natural hair. They do get love and they'll share that as well. But a lot of people in new structures included have a vision of what an anchor should look like. Their vision doesn't always include dreadlocks or natural hair. And for women who wear dreadlocks, natural hair, um, that can be a battle for them. Trying okay. to make your hair look a way that's just not natural just in order to keep your job. Nobody wants to look like that. It's kind of bizarre. So I guess it goes back to this issue and please everyone feel free to chime in here because this is our show. Um, where, why do, where do you think that this, this normalization or this need comes from regarding what an anchor should look like or what a reporter should look like in the newsroom or on camera? Where do you think that comes from? I found a, um, a quote from the Journal of Undergraduate Research at Minnesota State University that says, one second, Eurocentric beauty standards seem to be ingrained in Western societies that they are in various instances institutionalized to the point where the way a black woman wears her hair can determine what kind of jobs she can have and whether or not she can keep the job. Indeed, in most enterprises in the Western world, straight hair is considered more professional and presentable while natural hair is considered unkempt. Okay, so excellent reading. What does all that mean to us? Do you think we have more ways to go? Because when we talk about this issue of diversity in the newsroom, um, we cannot escape this issue of natural hair. I mean, is that something that we're going to be able to negotiate as we talk about diversity in the newsroom? I think as time goes on, um, it will be more accepted, but I think it's hard um, right now be just because a lot of people aren't used to that and seeing that. And like he said, people are you see your centric standards of beauty. So I know even for me in my personal life, when it comes to work and like jobs or interviews, I do get a bit of like worry about how I wear my hair, how should I wear my hair? So it's just, I think we have a while to get there, but I think we will eventually for sure. And I also don't think it just falls. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go right ahead, I also don't think it just falls under women in their hair because I've also heard about me and my hair, and about how my hair isn't kept the right way sometimes. And I always thought that that was a little. I just thought it was very unacceptable. It's distasteful, just like. That's well, a microaggression. Right. There's some reporters out there who are wearing natural hair now. They're like they're celebrating their natural hair. They're tweeting about it. They're putting it on Facebook. I don't know. I don't wouldn't say it's the majority, but there are plenty of women of color who are kind of pushing back against that. Um, just showing up with their natural hair. There's one, Lena Pringle might be her name, but she has just a fade and she rocks that all day long. She's always tweeting like, "Look at my fade today." So there are people who are showing that this Eurocentric beauty standard. Um, that's not everybody's idea of beauty. Right. So we now have also have another special guest with us, Professor Brett E. Chambers, who has served in a variety of numerous capacities inside of a newsroom, producer, uh, is a hiring manager, you name it, he's done it. Uh, if it doesn't have Brett, if it does not have, if it does not have the name of Brett Chambers on it, it ain't certified proper. Brett, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you doing this for us. You're muted. <laughs> okay, I, if you can hear, I'm sure you'll work on that issue because it was like, we've got you, your mic is not muted on my end, but join the conversation if you can. Uh, the question that we're talking about right now is black hair politics. And we also just got out of a conversation that talked about the notion of even the role of news directors and variety of news directors being out there to tell the variety of stories out there. Is there anything that you can add to that conversation for us? His mic is still muted. Okay. Okay, we'll come back, we'll come back. So as we're talking about here, we all know, are you there, Brian? Can you hear me? Can hear you now, thank you. Join yes, us. Okay. So many, they, they, they did a lot of changes in here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, your, your, your question was about the, the hair, is that yes. it? And, yes. Well, here's the, 
this is a um, there are certain things that that are going to happen or not happen um, because of contracts and because of convent what we call conventions and the way people do things. Right. News directors and people who produce these shows have certain looks that they want and the constraints are changing. The um, society's changing. Uh, there was a time when, and Shelby was, a, was on air. Um, I don't know, Shelby, by any chance, did you have a clause in your contract about you had to check with your news director before you made any appearance changes? That was not in my contract that I had to make any appearance. Had, I didn't have to get approval. Um, I did meet with um, like an image consultant who talked to us about what they kind of wanted us to look like. Um, it wasn't in my contract, but I kind of understood not to make anything drastic, not to make any drastic changes. Right. And, that, and that's the thing. It's like there are some things that are in your contract and there's some things that are kind of understood or some things that are a matter of practice in the way conventions, the way things have been done. Um, to give an example, I remember when we went through, a, uh, and it's not just women, by the way, is uh, when we went through a, a merger with a very large television outlet, um, a lot of the men shaved their beards and their mustaches because that particular company had a clause in their contract that said, I mean, clause in the company, or there's a policy in the company that men did not have facial hair. Um, if you worked for IBM back in the older days, IBM's uniform was kind of like a blue suit, white shirt, red, you know, some really nice tie. News is no different. They had the way that they did their things. You're starting to see news people now not wearing suits and ties. They're wearing logo shirts. And there was uh, one station in this market that at one time people were wearing lands in polo shirts and khaki pants and standing in front of big boards and whatnot. So all of it's changing. Now, the whole thing about um, legislating it, uh, there's a something called the Crown Act that comes out of California. And that's become a basis for a lot of the local entities to copy that. But the fact that we even have to do a Crowns Act is really interesting. So. You know, it's like, but times are changing. So people are more tolerant and some people are going to push the boundaries. And you couldn't have helped me pivot in a better way because Durham, North Carolina, according to WTVD News 11, uh, they have passed an ordinance that now bans discrimination based on hairstyle. So, Brett, go into a little bit more detail on this Crown Act. Tell us more about what it is and then let's have a talk conversation, I guess, if we can, about diversity of hair, I guess, again, in news, but also even just as a whole, when we think about that. Well, I, to me, it goes to the fun, fundamental of um, who, who and how you let people in and how people represent you. And it's got to be a lot different than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, because companies had more structure or they had a certain way for people to look who represented them. And that included whether we worked, like if you had a little bit of this, whether you even worked for them at all. So now all of these things are, are up, up for grabs now. Um, there was a time, Shelby is one of the early African-American or black White House reporters. Um, there weren't a lot of black people that were covering the White House years ago. You have a few more now, but not that many. Uh, so it's, it's just this whole idea of who's going to do what and who's going to decide that. Shelby, what do you say? Um, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's the gatekeepers making decisions about what reaches the public. You know, there are plenty of people who want to work in this industry, plenty of talented people who want to work in the industry. Um, but as, as for, because so many people say no, they'll never get a chance. So it's the gatekeepers. I do think the gatekeepers are changing. Um, thankfully, um, the people making the decisions about who gets on air are changing. And the people making the decision about 
what news reaches the public, they're changing as well. And that's all for the better. And, and I'd like to make a real quick comment about what something Shelby just pointed out. Pointed out. Um, gatekeepers are a dying breed because the technology has made it so that everybody is their own gatekeeper now. So if you want to be on air, you can do what you're doing, StreamYard or, and doing a podcast, or you can be on any of the many social media platforms, whether it's uh, you know Instagram or whatever. Uh, you can be your own gatekeeper now. You don't need to go to the network to be a gatekeeper. And they're, they're um, getting a lot of their content, they're curating a lot of their content from, um, you know, from the, all the other stuff that's out there. True. Good points. Good points. As we begin to even think about that, I think the other question that comes to my mind, too, is about, I guess, again, when we think about the coverage of people in news, we think about also who are the prime sources of the people who are the interviewees, the people who are interviewed for particular types of stories. Do you think that as we're looking at this shift and we want to say a possible shift uh, in coverage, and I put this out there to the members of the class too, do you think that we'll, beginning to, we'll start to also see a shift in going from, let's say, looking at, we'll give you an example. When we talk about this notion of business or we talk about this notion of science and something with numbers, will we always continue to see white men or Asian men in that capacity? Are we now beginning to see a shift in those people who are the professional, I guess, content experts? Because I think that has a lot to do with this, too, is if we're committed to diversity, can we start seeing this shift in those types of sources? Don't tell me I've stumped everything. <laughs> I think I think we are seeing a shift. Um, um, even like MSNBC on weekends, like who the experts the experts brought on to pontificate about whatever politics or the economy. Um, it can be a, a whole a lineup that runs the gamut of skin tones and and even hair textures. Um, even on one of the latest, but I think this was happenstance, but one of the last episodes of The View, Anna Navarro noted that she was looking at a screen full of women of color, Sunny Hostin, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Deborah Roberts. Um, so I think there is a shift. It's not happening everywhere, but there, the idea that an expert has to be one gender and one race is not something that's accepted by everybody anymore. And that's showing up in who, who gets booked to appear on shows. Thank you. It depends on, and a lot of it depends on the platform you're watching or listening to, even. Um, and it's good to see that some people are diversifying and some others are not. Some people are very happy with where they are. And, you know, if you watch them, you're like, whoa, how about y'all coming to like, you know, 2000? I mean, you know, <laughs> really, you know, some people need to come into the 21st century and others, they're pushing the envelope. I see some shows that have people that I would have never seen on there a while ago. Even some of the entertainment shows, half of them don't even like, they're like very casual. I mean, you think about it, Entertainment Tonight has two black people. I mean, Kevin is really good, he's a really good journalist, but I mean, not but, but there, there's two of them um, on that show. And you didn't see black people hosting Entertainment Tonight 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, Access Hollywood, we got Mario. So all of these different shows are changing and it changes based, it, it, let me put it this way, if it wasn't working, they wouldn't be there. Right. Put it that way. And I think it's important that we also mention too that we're getting to see a, a shift in the landscape as far as sexual orientation as well. Um, whoever would have thought, 20 years ago, we would have Ellen DeGeneres, an outwardly lesbian woman, hosting her own talk show. Or you would see a person such as Rachel Maddow, outwardly gay woman, hosting MSNBC. Um, and I think even then, the fact is, is that it shouldn't matter what it is. We want to be, I guess, really want to be inclusive. But I think for some reason, I think if we go back to that Kerner Commission report back in the late 60s, I really think that unfortunately, and I guess I'll add this as like a I guess our thought-provoking question, our last question pretty much of the day, 
Do you think we would be at this shift where we are right now, everybody, if it were not for the visceral death of George Floyd? I mean, uh, the death of George Floyd. Do you think that we would be seeing some of these shifts were it not for, I guess, the the, the death of George Floyd, the, the shooting of, of Mr. Jason Blake, other people of that nature, do you think that we we just had a point that it happened and we just got a flashpoint? Or was this something that was done over the course of time? I think me and my friend actually had this conversation a while ago. Um, what I personally think is that it was the pandemic on top of the death of George Floyd that really caused the shift. We had nothing to do but be on our phones, be on social medias. And I know for me, it really fueled, like I've always been into race and stuff, but it really like infuriated me when that's all you see on your timeline day in, day out, and that's all you're really doing. So I do think um, between George Floyd's death and us just having a lot of downtime with the pandemic that did cause a hyper-focus on what was happening in the world. Okay, Xavier? I agree with Shania, but also I feel like gradually over time, this change was going to happen. I just feel like what she said, it did help push it to come, that change to come a lot faster than at the rate that it was moving. And I feel like it was a good thing, but obviously not a good thing, but in a sense, it got people's eyes open and now a lot more people are, oh yeah, maybe we need to make some change. Media experts, what do you think? Well, go ahead, Shelby. I, I agree with the two, the two students. I um, There have been agents pushing for change forever. Um, they're behind the scenes for, you know, for various reasons. They will never make headlines. Um, they'll never be interviewed on national shows. And I'm thinking of like civil rights attorneys and civil rights groups that have been fighting battles forever that people will never, never know about. Um, I do, and they've always been pushing for change. It wasn't like people were complacent, like in the 70s or the 80s, and now now people want change. That impetus has always been there. Um, I do agree with, with Xavier that those recent events of George Floyd's death, um, all of that has made what they're pushing for like undeniable. You know, it's, it, it's, it's hmm. Hmm. one has to be living in an alternate reality to deny what we see on video. These events have made made it undeniable why we need to change. And I think it's helped, not we need to change, why some people need to change and has made it, um, and has pricked the conscience of some people to join forces with people who've been pushing for change for a long time. I think it was uh, those deaths and the shootings have been a catalyst uh, for some of the change that people have been fighting for, filing lawsuits for and dying for, for decades without any headlines ever written about what they're doing. Very well said. Professor Chambers. Yeah, um, echoing theirs, but because I'm a little older than all of you, uh, <laughs> um, the change has been coming, and Shelby made a very good point. The change has been, the change has been underway for a long time. And there are some gradual changes, some incremental changes, some incremental progress. And at different points, there have been some seismic shifts. Some have been tremors, some have been minor earthquakes. One of the big ones was when Obama won the, the presidency. And if you go back and look, there was a lot of diversity that was happening then. Um, all of a sudden you saw people showing up on CNN that normally wouldn't show up. Also, to even go back even farther, something I just showed my students today was a piece at, I used to work at WTVD and I started at WRL. And I was hired, I was in a fortunate position because I was hired by a black man, Paul Pope, who's been on NCCU's board of directors, board of trustees. But Paul hired me and I reported to a black crew chief and I sat in the control room next to a black male director. And then I left there and got hired at, a, at WTVD by a black program director. And I was trained by a black senior director. And my mentor was Irvin Hester, who was the first black male anchor in the Southeast. 
So I came up at a time when the changes were about to be made. I was pushed up and mentored to become one of the decision makers so that I could make sure that other people had a chance. So I have people at CBS Newspath, Mark Smith, um, the sister down at uh, Robin Brown, who was at ABC. Um, they, we had an opportunity to make some of those changes. And, and Shelby is so right about the people in the background, because I was an executive producer of some shows. There weren't a lot of executive producers that were black for local TV. I started making meeting some of the, the like the Topper Carews and some of the other folks who were the executive producers for network shows. And there was that change. So it's been a it's been a process and it's still going on. And each one of these things, whether it's um, you know, the Trayvon Martin incident or go back to the riots. The riots in the 60s is what caused us to start seeing black people on, on TV at all. So this has been a process. This and every time there's a crisis, we we get a little bit more, a little bit better crack in the wall. So the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, all of that's helped speed it up. But all this has already been in motion. Powerful statements. Powerful statements by a powerful panel of folks. I am so happy that you all have joined us, Shelvia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know how to thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule, because I know you're very busy. Uh, newswoman yourself, a professor, a practice, thank you for gracing us with your talent. Professor Chambers, uh, wonderful always to collaborate with you. Glad you could join us. Um, valuable contributions. I thank you both for your contributions, especially in Black History Month, for the work that uh, Black journalists have done. You've all been game changers in that regard. And to my two student panelists and the other one who hadn't make it, who, to, uh, we had to leave abruptly. We understand why. I want to thank you all so much for joining us. And again, this has just been another, just one of many episodes that we talk about these important topics here at the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. So until next time, I want to thank you so much. Please be sure to look for us on the Apple podcasting site, as well as Anchor, as well as Spotify. Or Spotify. Until then, be well, be blessed, and we will see you next time at the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. Mm -hmm.